What's it mean to be a Jew? What's it mean to be Jewish? Not exactly. All right, so we got some problems right in our title that we got to deal with. And we're going to deal with them over uh, the next three classes. Okay, what's our subtitle for our series? Does anyone have the fire tonight on us? I don't remember the subtitle. What's the subtitle? A study of the ancient Jewish festival cycle and its fulfillment in Christ in the, in the Christian liturgical year. Okay, so a comparison between the Old Testament festival cycle, the Feast of the Jews, and its fulfillment in Christ and the Christian liturgical year. What do I mean by fulfillment? <coughs> I know I asked this a couple weeks ago. Are you guys just shy? What do we mean by fulfillment? What's foreshadowed in the Old Testament when we got a glimpse of we see fullness in the new. Okay, good. Something of that. You see, it, it's important, first of all, speaking of Christ fulfilling the Old Testament, we always hear about that. But the question is, how does Christ fulfill the Old Testament? If he doesn't fulfill the Old Testament, then we're all in the wrong religion. Down in the okay. In fact, why was the Old Testament even there in the first place? Why didn't God just give us Jesus? Okay. Because we have a seed that we needed. What's that? We had a seed that we needed him. There's that definitely that aspect of it. Right? So one of the things about the Old Testament right, is that the people were ultimately not able to fulfill their part of the covenant with God. That's true. Right? So Jesus fulfilled that covenant completely and supersedes it with a new one. Good. Is that what you wanted? <laughs> That's part of what I wanted, except I want to get down to the foundation of what you said and ask even more fundamentally, why is it that Jesus fulfills it? Don't give me that answer yet. But I want you to think about that. Why is it that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament? What is it about Christ that makes him a fulfiller of the Old Covenant? Why does God change his mind, apparently, and give us the New Covenant? Why is it that the God of the Old Testament desires the sacrifice of lambs and bulls and all these innocent sheep and 
I mean, is he a bloodthirsty God that all of a sudden got happy with Jesus and changed? No, I, man doesn't understand what God wants, right? I mean, man, man turns things to his own understanding. And so God never desired man to sacrifice animals? He says very clearly, and David says it back to him, mm-hmm. you don't, that's not what you desire. The Miserere says it very clearly, what you desire is a clean heart. That's true, but God also commands him to sacrifice animals. It's the sign that man understands. Okay, good. Good. All right, we're getting somewhere. What does it mean, first of all, salvation is from the Jews. What is salvation? We've got to talk about these basic words. And today, we're going to back off. And I know you guys all want to talk about how the fulfillment typologically and the, sh- the, the shadows and all that between the Old and New Testament. And that's a lot of fun. We're going to get to that. But today, I want to back off a little bit and get a, a foundation for ourselves. So that when we're looking at those actual concrete realities of God talking about the Feast of Tabernacles and Christ fulfilling the Feast of Tabernacles, we understand why it is that Christ fulfills. Not just because he kind of acts it out in the same way, or it looks similar, or John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God, but because Christ really is fulfilling it in who he is. Okay? And we need that as a foundation. So what do we mean by salvation? What is salvation? Salvation from the Jews. It's, is salvation the restoration of the relationship between God and man? Can that be? What do you guys think? We're back in the garden. It's a good answer. What else? Any other answers? Yeah, say what you said again. It's very well said. The restoration of the relationship between God and man. Okay, the restoration of the relationship between God and man. Why do we need a restoration? Oh. Because it was meant asunder in the fall. Good. Always, we have to look back to the fall. I know you guys are probably sick and tired of me talking about Genesis. We're not going to spend all our time in Genesis, but spend a little bit of time. But always must look back to Genesis. Because apart from Genesis, as Cardinal Daniel says, if we, if we separate ourselves from the reality of the fall, if we ignore that or leave it by the wayside in our theology, suddenly our concept of salvation will change. And immediately we'll begin to see in salvation something other than being saved from a problem. Always remember that Christ came to save us from a problem that was there. To restore something we had already lost. Okay? Catholic Dictionary says about salvation. It is the freeing of the soul from the bonds of sin and its consequences and the attainment of the everlasting vision of God in heaven, not merely by way of reward, but as the achievement of man's proper end. Not merely as a reward, but as the attainment of man's proper end. What do they mean? What's the difference? The thing for which we created, fellowship with God, the possibility of the restored in the redemption and personally applied in salvation. Okay. Can anybody put that in layman's language for me? <laughs> Sorry. No, no. Someone else say the same thing in different words. I mean, you're right. It's not a prize. It's not a prize. Mm-hmm. It's what ought to be. Good. So when we talk about proper end... When we talk about end in today's language, normally we talk about the cutting off, the finishing, the no more of the thing, right? But in this, in, in theological, philosophical language, we're talking about the proper end. We're not talking about the ceasing of being, but the accomplishment of what the thing was made for. Okay? Salvation is the attainment of our proper end. What's important about that definition is exactly what you guys were pointing out, is that... Whatever it is we're going to get is what we were designed in the beginning to have. We were designed in the beginning to have it. It's part of who we are. So what is fulfillment? We already talked about that a little bit. What's fulfillment? What's it a little easier? What's it mean when a thing is fulfilled? Right? In the, sub, in the subtitle. The requirements are met. Okay. Completely. Uh, the requirements are ready yet. Jennifer, any thoughts? 
Come on. I'm your reader. Uh, I'm cutting them two off because they're going to end up talking the whole time. So who else? Somebody else. Hold on. Um, our proper name is to reach perfection, but we can't do it on this earth. It only happens when we finally get there. Okay. Perfection. Attaining all those things that we were made to be. If I can say it that way. What is the fulfillment of this chair? To be a chair. <laughs> you sure? Somebody said something. Good. All right, these are all good, but we're missing one aspect of it, and that is what the intention of the builder was. What if the intention of the builder of that chair was to make a wheelchair? Then is the chair fulfilled in what it's supposed to be? No. So ultimately, when we're talking about fulfillment, we have to talk about the intention of the one who made the thing. Okay? So we're talking about the fulfillment of the Old Testament festal cycle. We have to bring in what God's intention was in giving us the festal cycle in the first place. There's a couple chairs right up here, guys. Don't worry, we won't buy them. Another word we might use here is the good of the thing. When we say a thing is good, it means it's doing what it was made to do. A car is good because it's doing what its maker made it to do. A man is good when he's doing what God made him to do. A law is good. It is fulfilled. It is perfect. When what it was put in place to accomplish is accomplished. We're talking about the Old Testament feast as fulfillment in the New Testament. We're talking about the accomplishment, the perfection of what God intended those laws to be in the first place. God had an intention when he told Israel to sacrifice lambs, to sacrifice sheep, to burn them in fire. I was reading in uh, Numbers 28, he says, as offer them as a burnt offering, it is a sweet odor to the Lord. <laughs> Have you ever burned an animal? Not so sweet odor to the Lord. Okay. So what was God's intention in giving this sacrificial system? What was God's intention in giving the Passover? What was God's intention in giving the Feast of Tabernacles? And if we can discover that, we're going to have the foundation for understanding why it is that we as Christians see what we're doing as the fulfillment of what God intended Israel to do in the beginning. Does that make sense? Yes. And turn to Matthew. Chapter 5. I hope that makes sense. I'm not repeating it. Matthew chapter 5. All right, Jennifer, you get to do our reader then. From the beginning? Chapter 5, verse, sorry, verse 17. Think not that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have, not, I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whosoever then relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, shall be called at least in the kingdom of heaven. But he who does them and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Okay. Did God give us a law to circumcise? Did he give the Jews a law to circumcise? Yes. Okay. As Christians, do we have to circumcise? No. If you relax... Even the slightest, what did he say? One of the least of these commands. When's the last time you celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles? A statue forever, God says. We got a problem. Well, we don't have a problem. 
So there's an apparent problem. The first sentence again, Jennifer, verse 17. Think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Okay, translate that for me. What does he mean? I have come to fulfill the law. What does he see himself as doing? Don't just say fulfill, fulfilling the law. Translate that for me. There are a number of words you can use up there. Come on. Eileen, what's he mean? <coughs> The law is a way to habituate right and good behavior. When you're looking at good and beauty and truth in the eye, you don't need a law that tells you what it is when you see it. Okay. You're right. I have come to fulfill the law. We could say, I have come to perfect the law. I have come to bring about the end of the law. Not in the sense of its annihilation, but its proper end. What God intended the law to be, Christ believes himself to be there to bring about. He sees himself fulfilling the law perfectly, bringing it to its proper end, doing everything that God intended the law to do. Okay. Unfortunately, a lot of times we split the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And we take a look at the Old Covenant and we try to learn it's very difficult. With all of these laws that God gives of how to sacrifice and when to sacrifice and when are the feasts and not... You know, and on the seventh day you're supposed to do this, and the eighth day of the festival of tabernacles, it's the great day of the... And there's a lot to memorize. Forget memorizing the Catholic faith. There's a whole bunch of things that we look at, and we look at it, unfortunately, in a very static way. We look at it as a bunch of things we're supposed to memorize, supposed to come, become familiar with, and then we're supposed to learn our Catholic faith, again, in a static way, all these facts that we're supposed to learn, and somehow we're supposed to be inspired by all of that. Well, I'll tell you what, I don't know the Old Covenant to every jot and tittle. I don't know all the Jewish feasts. I know I'm standing before you supposed to teach them, but I've got three weeks to learn them, so. <laughs> I don't know all the aspects of the festal cycle and what they're supposed to do on what day and what animal they're supposed to sacrifice when. <clears throat> but what I do know is God's intention of giving every single one of those rules, every single one of those laws for Israel. I know why he gave them. And I want you to understand why he gave them. Because the reason he had them sacrifice sheep, 13 goats, 12 of this, 5 of those, was the very same reason that Jesus Christ came and was crucified and sacrificed for us. We divide the Old Covenant from the New Covenant. We see them as two fundamentally different bodies. And yes, we have nice language about the fulfillment and everything. But we don't realize the one issue that unites the thread, which is underlying all of the law in Jesus Christ himself. The reason why Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. And that's what we have to discover. I have way too many books up here tonight, so I'm probably going to lose them at some point. I'll go figure out where things are. Edersheim is a, is a Jewish convert. He's Christian now. Christ is indeed the end of the law for righteousness, to whom all the ordinances of the Old Testament had pointed, and in whom alone both the people and the history of Israel find their meaning. Viewed in this light, the temple services, or the festivals, are not so many strange or isolated rites, for the origin of which we must look among neighboring nations or in the tendencies natural to man during the infancy of his history. Rather, all now becomes one connected whole, the design and execution bearing even stronger evidence of divine authorship than other, than other of God's works, where every part fits into the other and each and all point with an unswerving steadfastness to him, in whom the love of God was fully manifested, and its purposes towards the and its purposes towards the world entirely carried out. 
From first to last, the two dispensations, old and new, are substantially one. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is also the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Did God change his mind? Did he give a bunch of laws in the Old Covenant and all of a sudden said, well, it just isn't working. I better come up with a new plan. No. What God planned in the Old Testament is what God brings to fulfillment in the New. It is, in fact, one covenant, one law, one instruction at different stages of man's history, different stages of man's growth. And just as I stand before my daughter today and tell her, there is a line, and here's where the carpet ends, and that's where the kitchen starts, and you're not going to ever cross that line. Similarly, in the Old Testament, God said for Israel, his new people, don't do this. Not right now. It's not good for you. Not right now. Don't eat pork. Not right now. It's not good for you right now. Is there anything wrong with pork? No. But there was something wrong with it for Israel at the time. Okay? We'll talk about that. We've got plenty of time to talk about that. What I want you to start to understand, or at least we're beginning here, is that we have to start to see the Old and New Testament, the Old and New Covenant, really as one covenant. Yeah, we can divide it up, and we can talk about the covenant with Adam, we can talk about the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with David, the covenant with Moses, and then David, and so on. We can talk about the covenant of Jesus Christ. But ultimately, it is one covenant which is being accomplished in man and coming to fulfillment, perfection, its proper end, at a certain stage in man's growth. The accomplishment of that rule of God for man in the Old Testament is what we call salvation. What God planned for man in the beginning, it is brought about by Jesus Christ. And it's that plan of salvation that we have to discover. Remember that old saying, the New Testament lies hidden in the Old, and the Old Testament is revealed in the New. The New Testament, in other words, is in seed form. It's there. The New Covenant is in the Old Covenant. It's an outgrowth, in a sense. Remember that the parable of Christ as he compares the kingdom of heaven to a seed growing into a huge tree which kings will come and rest under. Similarly, the Old Covenant is like that seed which blossoms forth and becomes a full-blown tree in some ways with Jesus Christ. We can talk about, in history, maybe three dispensations, three major covenants with man. Okay? And what's the first one? <coughs> you could disagree with my division, but that's my choice. What's the first one? I guess Adam and Eve. Yeah. Adam and Eve. As you guys know, I love the story of Adam and Eve. I love the story of the Garden of Eden, not because I have some fascination about the first three chapters of the Bible, but because in those first three chapters, we're given a glimpse of God's plan. We're also given a glimpse of the problem. And so if we study that close enough, we're going to all of a sudden start to realize that plan which God had from the beginning, that plan which he's bringing about through the sacrifices of the Old Testament, which is brought about and reestablished with Christ. Okay? So what was that plan? God created man on the sixth day. Why? You guys got to help me out here. We've talked about this before. We've got to just run through it real fast. Why did God create man on the sixth day? What's the catechism say? What's that say? Crowning achievement of his creation. Yeah, the catechism says that God created all things 
for man. Okay? Sorry, that's the word song. I feel like the teacher in third grade. Here's your lunch. Okay. They God created all things for man in the in the first five days, six days of creation of the animals, for man. The catechism continues and says, but if you're writing it down, you can put catechism chapter 357, I think. 358, sorry. But what? Man in turn was created for what? Yeah. But something more, right? In the, in the account of creation. The story continues. It doesn't just stop at the sixth day, does it? What is the culmination of creation? The rest of God. Yeah, the seventh day. The seventh day covenant. We've talked about that before. I'm not going to get into it. And the reason why God chose the seventh day. But the seventh day was the day for the Jews for the covenant with God. And what is a covenant? An agreement contract. More than a contract. More than just a oath. A unity. Yeah, we talked about the marriage covenant. That's my favorite example. Of the two becoming one. In every covenant, two parties are joined together in relation to the thing they're making the covenant about. Man is called into a covenant relationship with God on the seventh day. And the two shall become one. This was man's plan. This was God's plan for man in the beginning. The catechism says everything was created for man. But man in turn was to bring all things back to the creator. Offering himself in a loving embrace with his father. Orienting himself and all of creation towards its source and towards its proper end. Where it would find its fulfillment, its perfection in sharing the very life of God himself. That's God's plan from the, in the beginning. Keep that in mind. Remind yourself of that every single day. Because that is the entire story of the whole Bible. Old Testament, New Testament. God planned to bring us into a covenant union with Him. It's right there in the first two chapters of the Bible. And it's all the way at the end of the Bible in the New Testament. Because it is that which Christ has come to give us back. That is the good news. That Jesus Christ has come to give us back what God wanted for us in the beginning. To share his own eternal life with us. <coughs> Joseph Pieper. It is God who in the act of creation anticipated all conceivable, conceivable human love and said, I will you to be. It is good, very good that you exist. He has already infused everything that human beings can love and affirm. Goodness along with existence. And that means lovability and affirmability. Human love, therefore, is by its nature and most inevitably... And must inevitably be always an imitation and a kind of repetition of this perfected and in the exact sense of the word creative love of God. But if all goes well, as it should, then human love, in human love, something more takes place than a mere echo, a mere repetition and imitation. What takes place is a continuation, in a certain sense, even a perfecting of what was begun in the course of creation. What's he saying? That God, in an act of love, gave man existence. In fact, him seeing creation as good is the very act of him giving himself, sharing his own life with creation. The two are, you can't divide them. When God sees his creation as good, he sees it as desirable to be united with it. He goes on to say then that man, creating the image and likeness of God, is also to give his life back to his creator, not only his own life, but taking all of creation and bringing it to perfection. Till and keep the garden. Be fruitful and multiply. Continue my creation and bring it to perfection. Back to me on the seventh day covenant union. Okay? 
Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, before he was pope. Creation exists to be a place for the covenant. All of creation exists in order for the seventh day. That God wants to the covenant that God wants to make with man. The goal of creation is the covenant. The love story of God and man. The love story of God and man, of both of them giving their lives back and forth to each other, being united ever more closely, so that man can truly be said to be divinized, to be made like God, to be identified with God. But you know what the story is, you know what happened, they fell. They chose apart from God their source of life and found death only. All of salvation history, finish this sentence for me. I've said it a hundred times in here. All of salvation history then is what? All of salvation history is the story of what? God. Come on, yeah. This, oh, kind of, yeah. What was that? Restoration of the uh, yeah, all of salvation history is the story of man bringing, God bringing man back to him, of restoring that which he lost in the beginning. Every single story of the Old Testament, every single law, every single festival is about that one issue. If we keep that before us, then we will understand what it was, why it was that God chose a people for him why it was that he gave them laws to follow. Why it was that he gave them festivals to celebrate. All of salvation history is for that one point. And if we keep that in our mind, we will understand what it is, why it is, that Jesus Christ fulfills the Old Testament. Okay? Questions? Israel is identified in the Old Testament around two major things. Okay, some have called it the two great mountain traditions of Israel, surrounding around two mountains, two events that took place on mountains. And all of their identity is based upon those two events. And what are they? Two mountains where two major things happened to Israel. Zion. 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 Okay, and what were the two things that happened? The law was given at Sinai. Mm-hmm. And? Fulfilled. Jerusalem. Zion. The temple. The temple. Israel's identity is surrounded, I don't know how you want to say it, is identified with those two major events in its history. The Torah and the temple, the law and the temple, what happened on Sinai and what happened in Zion. Zion is one of the hills. Where's this early? Right? One of the hills in Jerusalem. Did you go to Mount Zion? Yes. It's a little elevated above the temple. I was reading about this last night. I can't wait to go someday. The Torah and the temple are, in some sense, two uh, aspects of the same reality. Okay, and that same reality is that thing we've been talking about, we're going to continue to talk about. That manifestation of God in such a way that he shares his life with Israel. Okay, they cannot be divided. Why are we talking about Torah and temple when we're talking about the festal cycle of the Jews? Because the festal cycle of the Jews, every feast was surrounded around or was pointed to what was taking place in the temple. And the Torah, the law, telling them how to celebrate the festival. Okay? Christ's fulfillment of the Old Testament has to be a fulfillment of the Torah and the temple. Okay? So what is the Torah? What is the law? 
Why did God give the Torah and the law? Because we would not have understood otherwise. What do you mean by that? Well, we lost the ability to communicate with God without Him making this explicit revelation, right? When I guess, how do you understand, right? Adam walked with God before he fell, right? So there was a communion there, mm -hmm. community there, right? So he implicitly, implicitly, that's a bad word, but I don't have a better one. It's okay. Right? Understood God's will. Okay. All right. So after the fall, right? One of the capacities that we lose is right. We've taken over. We can decide what's right and wrong. We have knowledge of good and evil, and we're subject to our passions rather than. Um, our intellect. Right? So we lost fellowship with God. We actually don't instinctively know as well. Now we have to sort out what it might be against our own inclination, against other temptations that are presented. Okay. Right? So we need explicit direction. Okay. It's written down. All right. That's true. That's good. I want to, something you said, just said, explicit direction. And this is well, the quote I'm going to give you. We're going to read it. I, you guys have the handout. Don't worry. Yet. I'm going to tell you what it is. Um, is this aspect of direction and law and our perception of who God is. Because again, God doesn't change. He doesn't all of a sudden become the nice Jesus in the New Testament. You've heard this, yes? Yes. The God of the New Testament is not the God of the Old Testament. And I can tell that. I know that for sure because Jesus would never have done this, 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 and this. Right? We've got to get that. I know you guys don't believe that. But I think embedded in our head in some way, there is that aspect. God of the Old Testament is this separated God. He's off in the distance, and he's very dictatorial. And I'll tell you what, if you disobey one law, you're going to die. Right? You know the story of Uzzah, who caught the, uh, the ark. David had put the, the ark on a cart to be hauled, which he shouldn't have done. That was against the, the law. And so the, the oxen are taking the thing, and the cart hits a little pothole, and the cart go, the ark goes sliding off. So poor Ooze is walking in all piety, probably walking as close to the ark as he could get, because he, he wasn't a priest, and he sees the ark is about to slide off and crash on the ground, he grabs it. And what happens to Uzzah? <laughs> Dead. Why? Because he was not to touch the ark. He was not a priest. He was not the one ordained to do it. And God struck him dead on the spot. Wow. Hmm? Jesus? No. <laughs> Don't say no. <laughs> but it's our perception, our misunderstanding that causes that. And that's what we have to get over. To really see Christ as a fulfillment. Okay? Um, your handout, which is the um, page 84 of the fulfillment of the temple. Okay, it's, the, it's got two sides to it. Right here. Good. Yes, this one. I copied this off for you because it was just too long of a quote, and I wanted you to take it home and think about it. Okay. Come down uh, about two, about one third of the page until you see my little highlighter go cross to Israel. Israel as a people understood herself. You see that? Yeah, you're all with me? Israel as a people. There you go. Good. Yeah, it's a highlighter. Sorry, I go crazy with my highlighters. I got highlighted two different colors. Israel as a people understood herself. Now, I'm going to tell you who this is, actually, before we read it. Is, this is Matthew Levering, who's a, uh, he's a young philosopher, Thomist, very highly respected over the last couple of years. And um, he's um, summarizing a Jewish scholar. Okay, And this Jewish scholar has a great, great perspective. So, Israel as a people understood herself to be related to God, covenant being a concrete mode of intimate relationship to God, by laws. Laws presume a lawgiver or an authority behind the laws. So Israel's relationship to God was seen as one of subject to ruler. On the other hand, Israel's relationship to God was not dryly legalistic in the modern sense, as when God is imagined as a distant and arbitrary judge. That's what I was just saying, right? And this Jewish scholar is saying, not at all. That's not how we perceive our law. Okay, Jennifer, please continue. 
Rather, God is covenantal partner. Is that what you want? Mm-hmm. I think so. Yes. Um, <laughs> rather, God is covenantal partner, lawgiver, and ruler, enters into the very fabric of Israel's history. In response, Israel comes into the fuller knowledge of God by obeying the laws of the Torah. Obeying the laws is Israel's means of embodying her intimate relationship with God. The laws are personal commandments given by God. The law, the laws make present in history God's personal love for Israel, by which God shapes her life in a manner pleasing to Himself. Levinson continues. Thus, observance of the Mosaic Torah is the opposite of an obstacle to a loving and intimate relationship with God. It is the vehicle and the sign of the just that, and the sign of just that relationship. By observing the Torah, the ancient Israelite enabled all aspects of his or her life to express God's covenantal love. In Levison's view, no further form of soteriology. Okay, so that's fine. We stop there. That's fine. Okay. He's just going on to say Levinson's view because he's not a Christian. He's saying that's enough. We don't need any more. What is soteriology? Right? Study. Study. Isn't it? It's a t- Anybody know? I should know that. That looks really bad. Soteriology. I, know, okay. I think it's like eschatology. I think like study of end things, but I could be wrong about that. So, well, look it up and bring it back to us next time. Sure. Soteriology. Okay. That's probably. I'm probably very much wrong on that. All right. Aquinas. Saint Thomas Aquinas divides. I lost my marker. Aquinas divides law, uh, the Mosaic law, into three different concepts. I lost my highlighter. Here we go, this works. Okay, three different types of law. One, moral. Give me an example of a moral commandment. Don't kill. Yeah, don't shall not kill or honor your father and your mother, right? Okay. Other laws for Israel are ceremonial. Okay. What's a ceremonial law? An offer a sacrifice. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And the third type is are judicial. And judicial establishes a relationship between man and man. Okay. Certain ways that we're to relate to to, to our fellow man. Um, if a guy kills your or accidentally kills your ox, you owe him so, so much. Okay? I'll give you an example of that. Turn to Numbers chapter 29. Numbers chapter 29. Mom, can I get a Bible? Numbers chapter 29. Can I get one more monitor? You guys got to bring your, not to, not to harp on you guys, but you guys got to bring your Bibles with you because you got to carry your Bible everywhere you go. I haven't said that in a long time, but I'm just saying it again. Take it everywhere you go. You never know when you're going to need it. That's you can open it. Especially during the holidays. You had, how many of you are flying? I told you so many times. Oh, come on. Somebody's flying here. I'm flying. You're flying. Thank you, Jennifer. When you get on the airplane, the people can't get away from you, so you can talk about Jesus all you want. So you got to bring a Bible with you. And you never know how God's going to use you. I sat down next to this one guy, and my wife nudges me and goes, you're going to Bible. Honey, I said, he's not going to. I can just tell. I tried to start a conversation with him. He wasn't interested. I said, he's not going to. And he would go on to use the restroom. And, um, and she says, just pull it out. And so I said, all right, fine. I pull it out, and we were reading through, I don't know, Tobias or something like that. And we're reading, and he comes and sits down, and I just had it open. And uh, for some reason, we weren't reading at that moment. He says, what are you reading there? I mean, he knew what I was reading. We ended up talking the rest of the time. So, you never know. What's that? No sleep for you. No sleep. Yeah, I did an all-nighter with a lady once on an airplane. It was it was crazy. All right. The permanent part. This is this is uh, levering uh, on Aquinas. The first. All right. Here we go. Come on. The permanent part is the moral law. The permanent part is the moral law, which contains precepts such as honor your father and mother. 
that are the foundation of right living and would not have been and would have been known immediately by the rational creature had reason not been obscured by sin. What's another way to say that? It's another title for that kind of law? Natural law. Natural law. It's things we got inside us from creation. From who we are. Okay? Same. He says... Sorry, which chapter? 29. I'm just reading this book, though. I'll read it next. The permanent part is the moral law. Sorry. Which contains precepts such as honor your father and mother that the foundation of right living and would have been known immediately by the rational creature had reason not been obscured by sin. The ceremonial and judicial precepts are related to this moral law. They constitute the way in which in a particular time, God at a particular time chose to arrange in accordance with the general and universal precepts of the moral law, the specific details of divine worship and of communal life. Okay? What's he saying? The moral law you can't change. But the precepts of the ceremonial and judicial are changeable depending on man's circumstances in order to better suit the end for which they're in, in place for. Okay? In some sense, the moral laws are an end in themselves. I honor my father and my, my mother. Why? Because I, it's what you do. It's a good in itself. But I slaughter a lamb for a further purpose. And if I can accomplish that further purpose in a better way, then the precept is changeable. Okay? You guys have all heard the distinction between big T tradition and small t tradition, right? Small t tradition is always the service of big t tradition. Okay? And it, it's changeable based upon whether it can better serve the higher tradition. Okay? Numbers 29, verse 12, Jennifer, and 13. Verse 12 and 13. We're going to give an example of ceremonial, because that's what we're dealing with in here, the ceremonial, the festal cycle. Go ahead. On the 15th day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work, and you shall keep a feast to the Lord seven days. This is the feast of? <coughs> Food. Food. Tabernacles. We're going to talk about this later. Okay, go ahead. And you shall offer a burnt offering, an offering by fire, a pleasing odor to the Lord. Thirteen young bulls, two rams, fourteen male lambs, a year old. It shall be without blemish. And their cereal offering of fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of the epoch for each of the thirteen bulls, two-tenths for each of the two rams. <laughs> okay, and so on and so on and so on. Right? Thirteen of this animal and five of this animal and a, and a little pinch of this and a little bit of that. Why? It wasn't for no reason. I can guarantee you that. We may never discover in this life why God chose 13 instead of 12 bulls. But he could have done it and accomplished his end. Okay? If man was ready. Maybe. I don't know. Clearly he chose 13 for a particular reason. Right? Because it's lucky? I don't think <laughs> Helen, I'm not sure that was the reason. Do you see what I'm saying? It's changeable in order to better accomplish the end. And if 12 is better than 13 in a particular point in Israel's history, then God has the authority to change that. But guess what? God can't ever tell us not to honor our father and our mother because it's the way the entire creation is set up. Okay? It's not only in who we are, but it's in who God is. Okay? Again, levering. I'm going to use, in this section on, on the two mountains, on uh, Sinai and, and Jerusalem, I'm going to be using levering a lot. So, uh, he says, Aquinas notes that all laws serve an end that the lawgiver has in mind. The divine law is no exception to the rule, and that... I hate it when I do a typo. That's the worst. Uh, no exception to the rule that laws are made with a particular purpose or an end in view. I'm saying, look, all laws have an end in view. What do I mean by end in view? Give me another word. Purpose. 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 Give me another word. Goal. A proper end, a goal, a good, a perfection. 
All laws have an end, right? 55 miles an hour on the freeway. What's it for? So that you're. What's well, not to say the well? Right? All laws have an end, and the divine law is not different than that. God has an intention to bring about the fulfillment or perfection of what the law was given for. The Mosaic law is ordered to one, one end, and it is the communion or friendship of man with God. What was the intention, the perfection of God's first dispensation with Adam and Eve? The communion of man with God. What is the intention, the fulfillment, the perfection of the Mosaic Law? The communion of man and God. What is the intention, the perfection of the New Covenant? The communion of man and God. God does not change. The one who changes is man. And he puts himself into all sorts of different states in relationship to God. And when he does that, a law is always given. And I was just talking to my brother about this. We were talking about the different covenants. And I was talking about this theory of one covenant. And I was saying, look, I have a covenant with my daughter. I make all sorts of rules about that covenant. If you're going to have a proper relationship with the family, you know what? You're not going to cross into the kitchen. She's not allowed to go to the kitchen. So one of the most best rules we have because she can't sit there hanging on Linda while she's cooking. Okay? And if she does good at that and she grows what, rightly, at a certain point, what am I going to say? Go ahead, go in the kitchen because you're not going to get burned now. But what happens to the 13-year-old punk? What's his dad say when he blows it really bad? Fine. What's he do? Come on, tell me. Yeah, he says, see that line I gave you when you're three years old? It's back. <laughs> and that's what the Mosaic Law is all about. It's all, that's what I should say law is all about. About man and his relationship to God achieving his proper end. That's what the Mosaic Law was to bring about. And the question is, how and why? How is it that slaughtering of lambs brought this about? We're going to talk about that. The temple, the final thing we have to talk about tonight, and then I'll get through a couple other pieces of notes next time. What was the temple about? Real quick. Chapter 25 of Exodus. Tell me while you're looking it up. What's the temple all about? What's that? <laughs> No, what did you just say? A, a place, goods. A place where God can dwell with man. A place where the communion between man and God can be established. The Torah and the temple are about the very same thing. Okay? 25, verse 8. And 18 and 22. Go ahead, Jennifer. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, according to all that I showed you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall you make it. And 18, you said? Uh, yeah, I think. Go ahead. And you shall make two cherubim with gold, of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Okay, so yeah, yeah, that gives me 18. So look, what's he saying? Make me a place where I can dwell. And then he says, in the middle of that place, put the ark with these two angels stretching out with their wings touching to make the mercy seat. And why the mercy seat? What is to happen there, verse 22, Jennifer? There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims that are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Okay. And when he's talking about speaking, he's not talking again. Look at the way Levering was laying it out and Levinson was laying it out. When he's giving the law, it's not God dictating to some foreign entity, but God speaking with his children to tell them how to live rightly, to how to be perfected. Okay? That piece of paper we were just reading, turn it over. We're going to probably we'll just finish with this. And maybe one comment by me. 
As the junction between heaven and earth, Zion, the Temple Mount, is a preeminent locus of communication between God and man. As 1 Kings chapter 8 makes clear, this preeminence does not mean that, that people have to go physically to Jerusalem in order to communicate with God. 1 Kings chapter 8 talks about if we're in exile and we turn to you and pray towards the temple, forgive your people. Okay? Uh, community of God. Rather, Jerusalem and the temple form a conduit through which messages pass from earth to heaven, no matter where in geographical sense they, they originated. Go ahead, Jennifer. God does not dwell. Oh, come on. Alright, God does not dwell anthropomorphically in the temple. Rather, by placing his name there, God enables all people to pray to him through the mediation of Zion, even while demonstrating that he transcends the, lo the local limitations associated with the building itself. On the basis of 1 Kings chapter 8 and similar texts found in the Psalms of Deuteronomy, Levinson goes on to state fact is that the temple the temple in the world, God's localization and his ubiquity are not generally perceived in the Hebrew Bible as standing in tension. As a microcosm or epitome of the universe and as a point of juncture between heaven and earth, the temple bridges God's transcendence and his imminence. The presence of God in through the temple, which as a microcosm epitomizes God's presence in the world and cosmos, manifests God's transcendent heavenly presence. Levinson concludes, therefore, that the Mount Zion and the, and the temple on it and the city around it are, this is hard to read, are a symbol of transcendence, a symbol of Paul Tillich's sense of the word, something which participates in that to which it points. God relates to human beings through the temple, not because God is contained anthropomorphically in the temple, but because the temple, as the true cosmic mountain, partic participates in and manifests God's transcendent presence. For this reason, prayer will be mediated by the temple independent of one's physical relationship to the temple, and even independent of whether the temple remains standing in Jerusalem. Finally, Levinson points out that the holiness of the temple cannot be separated from the holiness of those with whom God relates through the temple. Okay, pay attention to this. Go ahead. Law and temple, Sinai and Zion, necessarily complement each other, exegeting Psalm 24. Levinson remarks, the ethical tradition celebrates the order and lawfulness of man through which he qualifies for entry into the presence of God and the palace he has won. The temple represents the victory of God and the ethical ascent of man. The cosmic center is also the moral, moral center. The true cosmic mountain requires a people who have been formed by the Torah so that they might truly be able to participate in all the details of the lives in God's transcendent presence. Okay, that's a lot of heavy-duty stuff. Okay, what's he what's he saying? And this, uh, we'll finish with this. I'm sorry, I'm over time. Is that both the moral law and the temple are about the same thing? Coming into the presence of God and being transformed into His very holiness, and therefore they cannot be separated. The temple is the location, the place where man enters into the home of God. In fact, in Exodus 25, just that section we had read, it says, it talks about the pattern which God showed to Moses by which he built the temple. St. Paul tells us that that pattern that Moses saw was the heavenly sanctuary itself. And what he did then was came and he built it upon earth. And God came down and dwelt amongst men again. And man entered into his presence. Okay? Next time, we're going to talk real quick about why a new covenant, how does Jesus fulfill the Torah, how does Jesus fulfill the temple, and then start to look at these feasts. So make sure, hold on, see what you just say. Make sure you guys read that thing on measurements of the days so that we're all on the same page. Okay, we got time for 20 questions? No. Right. You, so want to do, you want to do a question and answer real quick? Temple, is the temple also then seen as the new meaning? One. And two, how does what you... All right, hold on. That's, that's a great... I don't know. Hold on. Time, time out. Time out. Time out. I'm going to give you anything you want. So hold on. Okay. We're going to take a, a, a two-minute break, a one-minute break. Everybody needs to go. And if you don't want to stay, this is an excellent question that is essential to what we're talking about. So I highly encourage you to stay. So go ahead. Stand up. Leave if you need to. And stay if you want. Okay. Question, go ahead. So the first you one, know the answer to this, don't no, you? I don't. Oh, okay. Well, I think the answer is yes, but okay. this is the first time where I got an underpinning. Mm -hmm. um, so the first question is, like, 
is just ask one question because that way that way other people can ask questions. Too. <laughs> okay, so is the temple then seen as the new Eden? Is that not like the question made for me? I mean, you guys. <laughs> Check this out. All right, no, no. Saint Ephraim, the Syrian, doctor of the church. A symbol of the divisions in that garden of life did Moses trace out in the ark and on Mount Sinai too. He depicted for us. He depicted for us the types of paradise, with all its arrangements, harmonious, fair, and desirable in all things. In its height, its beauty, its fragrance, and its different species. Here is the harbor of all riches, whereby the church is depicted. So is Eden the same thing as the temple? Well, it's the place of union with God. Yeah, what St. Ephraim is saying is that when when, uh, Moses saw the heavenly sanctuary... He saw what he went to write about when he wrote Genesis. Okay. Okay? He saw paradise in its heavenly state, and that's how he knew to come down in some way and draw out what it was for Adam and Eve to live in paradise. And not only that, but when he built the temple, or when he built the tent, and then later the temple was revealed, it was revealed as the place of paradise restored. That's what the Jews believed. Not only in what he was building and structure, but the actual location they believed to be the same. Okay? And then, as he goes on to say, the church itself is to be understood then as the fulfillment and return of what we lost, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the return to what we lost, namely the Garden of Eden, that the Catholic Church is the Garden of Eden restored. Okay? Other questions? Not one locale, everywhere. Ah, that's a good question. Why that is? We're going to talk about that later, maybe the third class. Okay. Well, let's. If there any other questions, you didn't all stay to find out what he asked, did you? Yeah. <laughs> I know he does, but come on, there's something else. No, nothing. All right, fine. Go ahead. Second question is: in, in all that last section that you just read between the two of you, mm-hmm. right? That actually conflicts with the first reference you gave, which is Jesus meeting with the Samaritan woman in John, John chapter four, where she says her response to him is, um, "You Jews say that you have to worship on the mountain in Jerusalem, in the temple in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. you know." And then, Jesus, so like, does okay. she not understand? Okay, so is Levinson writing way after the fact? No, no, Did no. the no, Jews no. of the time really understand this? Or? No, no. They're saying the same thing. Is that the temple is a place of our worship of God. That whole, all that stuff about whether you have to be in a temple or not, that's not really the point I wanted to get to in that quote. It's more that the meaning place between heaven and earth. In fact, it's heaven on earth is the temple. And, but in regards to that, no, the temple is par excellence the place of worship. And it is, what Levinson's saying is, this, it is where we worship, even when we're exiled. And the reason he's saying that is because of what, and the guy's alive right now, and he's saying, look, we don't have a temple. But I still worship in the temple. I worship through the temple. I worship through what the temple is. Right? So that's what he's talking about about there. And, and so, yeah. Right, and this would be a different understanding than Islam has of Mecca. Uh, yes. Right? Yeah. yeah. It's a now that right. Mecca, Mecca is a requirement for at least one lifetime pilgrimage, right? For the cross, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Okay. In the Old Testament, they were going to go to Jerusalem three, three times in the fe- for the three feasts. Okay? So in your life, you had to go three times? Or every no, no, every year. Three times. Up three times. Now, how much they were able to actually follow that or not, but it's, it's there. We're going to look at it. Okay? In fact, it's, it's one of your quotes in there, one of the references in that page. But okay. they wouldn't have to, because you don't have to be there. What's that? They wouldn't have to, because you don't have to be in the temple to pray. Yeah, and there is that relationship. When in exile, you do the best you can. And that's where all of a sudden the theology starts to develop in the mind of Israel, the realization of what's going on in the temple anyways. See, because while all the sacrifices were taking place, they still got kicked out of paradise. They still got kicked out of the temple. Because what the whole thing was about wasn't taking place. It was external conformance rather than interior conversion. Right, and that's where all of a sudden you see in the prophets a revelation of a theology about interior worship. And saying, look, I don't care about your stupid sacrifices, which seems to contradict, right? Right. 
He's saying, what I want for you is more than that. What I want for you is the true sacrifice, the true circumcision, because all of these things were put in place for a purpose, for a perfection, for an end, and I want you to get to that end. Okay? What the lady here said about Psalm 51 in the beginning, mm -hmm. the first answer, right? Which was? Desire oh, the, the, heart. the desire of the heart, right? Yes. Um, it's interesting because you made the comment that it seems that this may contradict um, what we saw in John 4 or whatever. And as I was reading this, it seemed to me that this business of the temple being a place and sort of transcendent explains how we can say that Jesus Christ is that mediator. And whether you think you're worshiping in Christ or not, you are worshiping in Christ. That, that he's that place where we're going to meet. Okay, I'll, I'll grant you this. That all true worship happens in Jesus Christ. Okay. So if there is true worship taking place in the heart of man, orienting himself to God with the little revelation he has, mm -hmm. then the church says yes. That if that's taking place, then it is all through God. And that's why the church says only salvation is through the Catholic Church. Right? Even so non-Catholic can still be saved, yeah. but only through the Catholic Church. Even though they might not realize it. Okay, we're done.